In 1 Samuel chapter 21, we read about this moment when Saul has finally turned on David. I don't know if you remember all the details of the story. Uh, David uh, was a young man who was anointed to be the next king of Israel instead of King Saul. Uh, So that means that King Saul's line would not continue. It turns out that David is actually best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, the prince. And so they they are friends together. And yet David and Jonathan are men of faith. And Saul, over the course of 1 Samuel, is shown to be not a man of faith. He doesn't trust the Lord. And so instead of kind of embracing God's will for the kingship of Israel, Saul wants to hold on to it for himself. And he realizes that David is the next guy. Now, this little incident between David and the Philistine Goliath had, you know, caused a bit of an uproar. And so David is now very popular. And so he's popular in the eyes of Israel. So that popularity, I mean, tons of social media followers, like tons. It was was out of hand. So, you know, Saul is now, you know, concerned about David. Now, David is a direct threat to him. And so Saul is going to try to kill David and Jonathan tips off David. And right there in 1 Samuel 21, we find the first record of David on the run from Saul. So now he's on the run. And he goes and he has to get food from the, the tabernacle, the temple, and that, that's kind of a weird moment. And then he, he actually goes and he, he needs a safe place to go. And he's hiding from the king of Israel. So he figures, I'll go to the enemy of Israel. I'll go to the Philistines. So he actually flees to the Philistine city of Gath. And he basically is hiding in plain sight in this Philistine city where there's not a lot of Israelites around. But the thing is, I mean, David and the Philistines weren't exactly friendly either, right? And so people start to recognize David. And they're like, listen, is that the, is that the guy? Is that the guy from Valley of Elah? Like, isn't that the guy? So then they start, and, and they literally say, Did they, would they, Israelites sing songs about this guy, about how many Philistines he's killed. This guy's right here. So David, he's in trouble. And he's not exactly Jason Bourne, so it's like he's not going to, you know, sneak his way out of this deal. So he, he's like, he feels threatened. He's on the run. He's desperate. So what he does is he pretends to be a crazy man. He goes into like crazy mode and he starts scribbling on the, the doors of the gates and he's got saliva running his beard and he's just talking all weirdo and crazy. And they're like, I, I don't know if this is the guy or not, but what is going on? And even the king, King Achish says to his friends, he's like, we don't have enough crazy people already in this town. Like now we're like importing crazy people. This is this moment in David's life. It wasn't a high point. In fact, it was a moment of desperation where he's on the run, he's wandering, he's afraid, he's out of ideas, and the best thing he can figure is, I'm going to pretend to be a crazy person. And it's in that moment that the compiler of the Psalms takes Psalm 34 and says, this Psalm actually is connected to that event. If you look in your Bible in Psalm 34, in the prescript, it says, concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence presence of Abimelech, who drove him out, and he departed. Apparently, Abimelech is one of the titles Philistines use for their king, my father, the king. But we have this psalm, which is a response in the heart of David to that moment, that moment of desperation, that moment of wandering, that moment of confusion, where he thought he had nothing better to do than pretend to be crazy. I wonder if you've been there. In the, in the moment of desperation where you feel like you're wandering in your life. You feel like, wow, I I thought God was leading me this way, and now I'm not so sure because this or that has happened. I'm confused. Maybe you've been pleading with God for help, and you're just out of ideas as to what to do. 
Well, in those times, we can be tempted to despair, to just give up, or to believe that God doesn't care and he's turned his back on us. Or even worse, to believe that God is angry with us and actively conspiring against us. But Psalm 34 reminds us that even in those moments of desperation, even when it seems like we have no better option than to do something really crazy, we need to recognize that God still cares for us. This is a response of worship and thankfulness to God's faithfulness to David, even in that moment in Gath. It's not only a response of worship, though, it's also a call to wisdom. It's almost as if David says, I was in this really low moment, and man, I, I, I didn't know what else to do, but God was still faithful. And therefore, whoever's reading this psalm, you need to trust God as well. You need, to, you need to learn the lesson that God is worthy of our trust, that we can rely on him, even when it seems like the best thing you can do is to act like a crazy person. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's your tactic this morning, to go out of here acting like a crazy person. But I do think we're called to, to reflect on God's faithfulness and his grace that's expressed in this interesting moment, and I think a low point in many ways in David's life. Psalm 34 is designed as an acrostic psalm. So if you could read it in Hebrew, every line would begin with the next letter of the alphabet. And that's meant for memorization. It's meant to be one of those psalms that you would memorize and have handy in all the different kinds of circumstances you would face. I think especially when you feel like you're at a point of desperation is why you would need to memorize this psalm. So let's look at it together and we'll see the response of worship and then the call to wisdom that you and I can respond to uh, in light of God's faithfulness. Picking it up in verse 1, there David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I would just highlight there that, that little modifier, at all times. Because clearly, since the psalm is connected to this moment in Gath, David is saying, I will bless the Lord even when I have to act like a crazy person, right? Even when I'm at my most desperate moment, even when I'm not sure what to do and it seems like I have nowhere to go, I will bless the Lord. His praise will always be on my lips. That is a statement of faith, and it's a statement of faith in spite of the fact that many days we may not feel like blessing the Lord. Our circumstances may not naturally incline us to bless the Lord or praise the Lord. But David articulates here, listen, I'm going to worship him all the time. Specifically in moments when I'm humbled. Watch verse 2. I will boast in the Lord, or I will boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear and be glad. And I think here there's an allusion to the fact that David was humbled at that moment. That he had no, again, he, he didn't have any other resource than to just, you know, do this act and hope that the king of Gath didn't kill him, right? And there he was humbled. And yet when he was humbled... He saw God's faithfulness. And so he says, I will boast not in myself, not in the warrior David, but I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. And then verse 3, kind of an initial call to join the party here. He says, proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let's exalt his name together. David says, I want you to join with me here in praising God even in the midst of humbling circumstances because God humbles us to heighten our worship. Think about it this way. God puts us in difficult circumstances so that we have no other option than to trust in him. He humbles us to heighten our worship. So often we are so focused on the circumstance changing, right, that we don't like, 
that we forget that God works in those circumstances. And for whatever we want to say about the scene in 1 Samuel 21, we have to say that David's reflection later is that, honestly, this was a moment that is worthy of worship. It's a moment when God showed his greatness. And so he affirms, I will, I will bless the Lord at all times. Let, let the humble hear and rejoice. Like, join with me. Let's, let's praise the Lord together. Because even when I'm wandering, even when I'm desperate, even when I've been humbled, right, there I see God's goodness still on display. I mean, think about it. Which story would you want to tell your grandkids? Goliath or Gath? You know? I mean, if you're David, you know, he gathers his grandkids together. Kids, let me tell you about this one day, right? This one day. There he stood, right? You know, and I like that. Just tell him the story, right? You tell that story. The day when you trusted the Lord and you came through and it was, you were big time and I was awesome. Like, tell that story. But he doesn't gather up the grandkids. Let me tell you about this story. <laughs> like one day, I was so scared. I didn't know where to go. And so I ran to the enemy and I was so in trouble. And then I, but you're not telling that story because it's a little bit embarrassing. And yet David says, in that moment when I was humbled, actually it was good for me. His response is worship. I wonder, how do you respond to being humbled? How do you respond when God puts you in a situation where it's just not one of those tell the grandkids about, you know, moments? It's a moment when, when your weakness was on display. Will we worship God when we're wandering? Will we worship God when we're desperate? Will we worship God when we are being humbled? Martin Luther said, God is so disposed that he gladly hears those who cry and lament, but not those who feel smug and independent. If we think we don't need God, if we, if we refuse to be humbled, Luther says, that's a problem. God's not hearing you. He says, but God is inclined to hear those who cry out to him for help. There's only one boast in verses 1 through 3. It's in the Lord. There's no room for boasting in self. In many ways, David just acknowledges the weakness that he has here in, in this moment in his life. And so as he does so, he's saying, it's okay that I needed help. It's okay that I acknowledge my dependence on the Lord. We find a similar sentiment from the Apostle Paul, don't we, in 2 Corinthians 12? He talks about, when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, the problem that we often face is this temptation to just want to hide weakness and cover it up and pretend it's not there. But when we read the scriptures, it's very clear that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Don't forget when you're being humbled that God's using that to, to actually heighten your worship, not to detract from it. Well, in the next section, David reflects on God's response to his call. He kind of rehearses what happened. Verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This is such an interesting statement in verse 5 because think about it. He was in Gath. He's now they figured out, starting to figure out who he is. He's like, what do I do? I'm going to pretend to be a crazy person. And then people are going to think negatively of him. Like, oh, this is just a crazy person. And they're going to think about him you know, in negative terms. He would be shamed in that, in that kind of moment in Gath. But here he says, even in that moment, while people would laugh at me, he says, I realize that by trusting the Lord, I'm never ashamed. He's not saying people will never laugh at you. 
He's not saying people won't, people won't mock you for your faith. He's saying those who look to him are radiant with joy and their faces will never be ashamed. Ultimately, that we find in the Lord, what do we find? Acceptance. We find strength. We find provision and protection. Verse 6, he goes on. This poor man cried. This poor man, me, right? This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles Verse 7, interestingly, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The angel of the Lord is an important uh, angel in the Old Testament. The angel uh, angel for the Lord does the work of delivering a message from God or protecting God's people, right? We We see him function like that with Balaam in the book of Numbers where he protects Israel from the curse of this pagan prophet. Uh, We see the angel of the Lord protecting Israel in Joshua 5. And so there's this idea, you know, the angel of the Lord is protecting God's people. And so David says, yeah, even though I was wandering, even though I was desperate, I cried out to the Lord, and what did I find? Actually, I thought I was going to die. I thought the Philistines were going to lynch me. But the fact is, God protected me. God was gracious and merciful to me. The angel of the Lord was, was protecting me. As David rehearses his experience in verses 4 through 7, We see that seeking the Lord when we're in a position of desperation is always the right move. Seeking the Lord is always right. The idea that we'll never be ashamed, again, that's not a statement that says you're never going to be mocked for your faith, but it's a statement that ultimate vindication comes to the believer. Ultimate vindication comes to those who find refuge in the Lord. And so we're called to just be reminded here that seeking the Lord is the best decision, even or especially when we can't see what else we need to do. Now, David is not saying, well, you don't need to be wise and figure out what the good strategy is. I think David would have loved to have a better strategy than pretend to be crazy. But the fact is, he's saying, even in that moment of desperation, I sought the Lord and the Lord heard me. The Lord protected me. I didn't know if it was going to work out in the moment, but as I look back, I saw, I see God's grace, right, on display. I can see the ways that God provided for me and protected for me. And so in a moment of desperation, even as we depend on the Lord, we have this opportunity to see God's grace on display. And when we act, we act knowing it's not going to work out unless God blesses this action, unless God actually causes it to be successful. It's interesting. Uh, Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The the, the verse introduces this idea of the fear of the Lord that's going to be important for the rest of the psalm. The fear of the Lord is a positive in the Bible, right? It's this right response to God's holiness and his majesty, his transcendent glory, his power, right? It's, it's recognizing that God is worthy of worship. Fear of the Lord is faith language in the Old Testament. It's where I'm going to respond to God, not with pride, but with humility. Like that's the idea behind the fear of the Lord, it's not cowering fear, but it's reverential fear. It's worship marked by how we live and how we approach the Lord. You know, you might ask the question this morning, is that you? You know, am I a person who fears the Lord? Is that a hallmark of my life? Do I stand in awe of God's glory? Do I respect the word of God as it is the word from God? Do I seek the Lord's help when I'm in times of need? Do I submit to God? Do I obey God? The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And as David reflects on that moment, he says, you know what? It was all really crazy back then. I was running from Saul. I didn't know how it was going to work out. The best idea I had was to go to to Gath. And well, it probably wasn't a great idea, to be honest. But you know what? God was faithful. And when I cried out to him for help, he provided. 
Turns out fearing the Lord is right. It's good. And even though I was shown to be weak, God was shown to be strong. And so David here affirms that moment when the Lord protected him in Gath. Watch verse 8 as he continues. He turns then now to the response. And this is, this is kind of the heart of the psalm in verses 8 through 10. This is where he turns the corner to then say, okay, so what? All right, you're hearing this psalm, you're reading it. Well, what's, what's the takeaway? Verse 8, here starts the imperatives. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy, how blessed, how joyful is the person who takes refuge in him. If you pause there just at verse 8, right here, and many of us are familiar with this verse, but right here we get the, the main idea for this psalm of how we should respond to thinking about God's faithfulness to David in this one moment. The response is this, join the party, jump in, taste and see that the Lord is good. Those imperatives are not just an invitation, but a summons where David says, you need to come and experience the goodness of God. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's really interesting. This verb taste, there's not much significance to the verb. It just means to taste. But there's actually a noun, the noun taste. And in 1 Samuel 21, apparently there was a, a turn of phrase where it means, where if you said to change your taste, to change his taste means to act differently than you are. And that's actually what's used in the prescript of the psalm when it says David changed, he says, pretended to be insane. Literally in Hebrew, it's changed his taste. Which may be why the compiler of the psalms connected this event to 1 Samuel 21. But what David is saying is, when I changed my appearance, when I changed my taste before uh, this Philistine you know, king, I was desperate. I didn't know if it was going to work out. But when I did that, I actually tasted something much better than my plan. I tasted the goodness of God. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jump on in. The water is fine. And then, second half of the verse, how joyful, how happy, how blessed is the person who takes refuge in him. Now, just so we're clear, in 1 Samuel 21, this, it didn't go like this. Oh, David's on the run. He goes to Gath, pretends to be crazy. God protects him. Okay, he's fine. And now he's king. He goes to Gath, God protects him. He leaves Gath, still is not working out, has to stay on the run. He ends up actually going to Moab, another enemy across the Jordan River to seek protection. And he's wandering around and he almost dies like a billion times, okay? Wandering in the wilderness, hiding in the caves of Adalam, hiding in Moab, here to there, right? Constantly under threat from the king of Israel who's hunting him with his army. And David's saying, actually, how blessed, how blessed are those who fear him. How blessed are those who take refuge in him? How how blessed is the person who says, whatever I'm doing, I want to do it with fear of the Lord driving me. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's just important to acknowledge that we can suffer from secondhand knowledge of the Lord, where we hear people talk about God, we, we hear sermons, we sing songs, like we do all of that, and yet we don't trust the Lord. It's not something that we ourselves have experienced. And David says, don't be the person who's sitting on the bleachers watching the game. You need to get in. You need to experience the Lord's goodness. Because when you risk and trust the Lord, what will you find? You will find that he is good. That's what you'll find. He's not going to let you down. You ever had somebody recommend a restaurant to you and it didn't work out? Listen, I'm from California. 
So the pinnacle of fast food is In-N-Out Burger. And praise the Lord. And so, you know, it's just, it is. And they put Bible verses on their cups, so it's holy. So I don't know what to tell you about it. So like, you know, that's the thing. And I often will sing the praises of In-N-Out. It is, it is fast food. It's a $5 hamburger, okay? So let's just keep that expectation level in mind. And, but I tend to hype things up because of my personality and gifting, okay? And so uh, sometimes people, sometimes people from New Jersey, sometimes people in this church have gone to California and they've eaten in and out and they came back and they're like, Pastor Ryan, what a letdown. That was terrible. I'm like, well, it's a $5 hamburger. So let's just, you know, can we just kind of, you know, scale the expectations down? I mean, it's, it's fast food. And, you know, we laugh and joke about it. But basically I had told them it was good and they tasted it and they said, it was not good. I didn't like it. Now, they probably didn't order right. That's a whole other thing, right? We could talk about it. But sometimes, sometimes you know of a restaurant that's so good that you don't, even, you don't have to worry about it. You're like, listen, I guarantee you go to this place, you'll be well-fed. You don't take my word for it. Taste and see. Go experience it. There's no risk here, even though there's risk here, Right? Because what David is calling us to, he's calling us to risk by trusting the Lord in moments of dependence, all the time, but especially in moments of dependence, when we're desperate, when we're confused, we don't know what to do. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust him. What does that mean to trust him? It means to to actually rely on him, to follow his word, even if you don't understand how it will lead to good conclusions or why it will be better for you. You know, sometimes we think, well, I want to know exactly how God's going to work it out. And God's like, you don't need to know that. You need to know, go here. Do this, right? Take the next step. Taste and see, David says, that the Lord is good. And then how happy or blessed is that person who does take refuge in him. There's a a promise here of provision. Watch verse 9. You who are his holy ones, talking about the saints, believers, those who've trusted in him, you who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. David lacked a lot of things on the run from Saul. He lacked provision. He lacked safety. In fact, you know, at certain points, he lacked water out in the wilderness on the run. But he says, I didn't lack anything. Isn't that powerful? I can, I can lack money. I can lack physical health. I can lack stability in my job. I can lack peace in my family. But the truth is, when I fear the Lord, I don't lack anything. There's an exhortation here to those who have already identified themselves as followers. It says, hey, holy ones, be holy. Fear the Lord. It's one thing to sing about it on a Sunday. It's another thing to live it on Monday morning. Like, go, go get it. Go taste and see. And then he uses this beautiful picture from nature with the young lions. Verse 10. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. So David picks, there were lions in Israel at this time in history. So he picks the lions and he says, not just lions, but young lions, like, like lions that are, you know, healthy and strong. Like they're like, these are the, these are the strongest, most self-sufficient animals you can think of. Okay. Pinnacle of the food chain here. And he says, even those young lions that have all that energy and those young muscles and young bones, and they're out there. He says, even young lions who are really self-sufficient, young lions lack food and go hungry. Even young lions go, go hungry from time to time. But he says, those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Even if it means I end up in Gath, pretending to have lost my mind to try to preserve my life, David says yes. Because if you're seeking the Lord, 
The Lord will provide for you what you need. You see, tasting the Lord's goodness means trusting the Lord. Tasting the Lord's goodness here means trusting the Lord for provision. The battle is the battle with self-sufficiency, where we say, I don't need the Lord. Now, we usually don't say it that directly. We just start to act like it. And maybe we slowly gravitate away from dependence on the Lord. We start praying less. We start uh, gathering with the saints less. We start talking less about God and his goodness. And it's more just about me, what I'm doing, and my plans, and my provision, and, and me harnessing the power of the market, and me getting the new job, and me, you know, this, that strategy, and all of that. And David says, listen, just be careful, young lion. Be careful out there, because you can roar all you want. But if there's no food, there's no food. Young lions go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. David had lived it. And as he responds in worship, he's not content to just let it be about him. He's welcoming us into this this moment of faith. He's saying, trust the Lord, turn to the Lord. How do we do this? How do we taste the Lord and see that he is good? How do we trust the Lord? Well, we acknowledge our dependence on him, right? We just have to say it out loud. Lord, I am dependent on you. We should pray about our needs. When we're in moments of desperation, seek the Lord in prayer. Deliver them, those needs, to the Lord in prayer. He knows about your needs, but by praying about them, you're actually expressing your need in dependence on him. You're saying, Lord, this is what's going on. I need your help. And I know you know that I need your help, but I'm coming to you as as my father. I'm coming to you as the provider. I'm coming to you as the rescuer. I'm asking you to provide. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust the Lord by reading his word. You know, there's, there's testimony in God's word that is designed to help us, specifically in times of, of crazy dependence or confusion. Read his word. But ultimately, all that has to lead to the next decision, which is to risk by faith-driven obedience. Again, God's calling David to a particular response to Saul. And it was risky. It was risky to keep running, and it was risky not to kill Saul. But David said, I'm going to trust the Lord, and I'm going to to keep going. And God's calling you and I to that same level of faith-driven obedience, where we have to acknowledge there's risk there on one hand. You don't know for sure exactly how God's going to work it out. You don't know exactly what he's going to do. But what you're banking on is not your knowledge of the master plan, You're banking on your knowledge of the master, right? And you're saying, okay, Lord, I'm trusting you. And if I tell the truth of my taxes and I have to pay this extra tax, I'm trusting you that you're going to provide for my needs. Lord, if I handle this dating relationship this way and I, and, I, and I honor you and I pursue holiness in my, in my relationship physically with this person, they might think I'm weird or odd or crazy, so I'm, I'm trusting you with how that's going to work out. And, and again, we're leveraging not knowledge of the future, but we're leveraging knowledge of God and his goodness. Tasting the Lord's goodness means trusting the Lord. We have to say no to self-sufficiency and say yes to recognizing our dependence on the Lord. The rest of the psalm is a description of what this looks like and an invitation to be this person who tastes and see that the Lord is good. So we'll see, it kind of works in two parts. We're going to walk through these next 11 verses um, fairly quickly because he develops the idea and just kind of repeats it. 
He says in verse 11, Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So we're kind of back on that theme of the fear of the Lord here, right? So come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? This is David saying, anybody want a long life? Uh, you know, a good life, you know, raise your hand. Some of you just raise your hand. Thank you for that. Yeah, so thank you. I appreciate that. So he's saying, listen, you, you want the good life? This is it. This is not a promise that every person who believes will live to their 90s. This is a promise that if you trust the Lord, you will see that he is good, right? But he says, hey, listen, if you want the good stuff, come and get it. Fear of the Lord. This is what it looks like. Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. 14, turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. That, if you pause there, that, that's fundamentally the description of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord says, I'm going to turn away from evil, both in my speech and how I live, and I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to speak differently. Then in verses 15 and following, he compares and contrasts the righteous with the wicked. The righteous being the person who has trusted in the Lord, the wicked being the person who trusts in themselves. He says in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. Like that time when I was in Gath. And that's it, right? The the Lord was watching me. He was watching me in that moment of desperation. He heard my cry for help. Verse 16, but the face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. You know, David says here, listen, if you're going to insist on being God's enemy and and depending on yourself rather than him, you need to know that that means that God, his face is set against you. Again, he opposes the proud. And there's not going to be like a a hall of fame in eternity that's like, these are all the people who stubbornly refuse the Lord. Like that's not, that's not how we're going to enjoy eternity. So if you're choosing self-sufficiency in the long run, you're making the wrong choice. Because you won't defeat the Lord. Verse 17, continuing the compare and contrast. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. Verse 18, that the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves those crushed in spirit. 19, one who is righteous has many adversaries, but the Lord rescues him from them all. If you just pause there, important concepts here. First of all, repeating the idea that the righteous are the ones who depend on the Lord. They're not inherently righteous. Okay, but they're the ones who are trusting in the Lord. And what do they find in the Lord? They find rescue. They find help. Verse 18 is really important because here David acknowledges that trusting the Lord doesn't mean everything always goes smoothly. It's not always easy. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, he says, and saves those crushed in spirit. David acknowledges there will be days when your heart will be broken. There will be days when your spirit feels like it has been trampled on by a stampede of elephants, crushed. And in those moments, the Lord is near to you. In those moments, he's not far from you. He's near to you. When your soul feels feels crushed, don't forget that the Lord rescues those who are crushed. Maybe you're mourning the loss of a loved one. Maybe you've been Maybe you've been uh, violated by a friend who's turned their back on you. Maybe someone has, has attacked you at work, right? Maybe you have uh, just a physical trial and you're just pummeled. Maybe it's the chemo is just, just literally pounding your body and you feel crushed. 
in those moments, we are gifted Psalm 34, verse 18. And David says, just like when I was in Gath, and I thought, this is it. I have no other recourse. I just got to pretend to be crazy. In that moment, the Lord was right there with me. And he protected me. And he cared for me. And he walked with me right through it. Ultimately, he rescued me. Yes, there's many adversaries of the righteous. Many, many adversities and many enemies. But God rescues from them all. In verse 20, so interesting. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. It's interesting here. He talks about God protecting the bones of the one who trusts him. And again, of course, he's not saying that no one ever breaks a bone. But he's saying that God cares for those who trust in him. More on that in a minute. But he says, evil brings death to the wicked. The wicked choose evil. Evil brings suffering and death. But they will actually experience that, that end of death. And they will be punished in the sight of the Lord. This is talking about the judgment from God against the wicked here. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants, those who trust him. And if we take refuge in him, we are protected from punishment. Protected from the judgment of God. It's so interesting. David here says there is a fundamental eschatological issue here of will you face judgment from God? And he says only those who humble themselves and seek the Lord will find protection. I mean, the, the picture is very clear. Here's the road of, the, of the, the righteous, okay? They fear the Lord, right? They, they depend on the Lord. They're humbled. They say no to, to lying and deceitfulness in their lips, Right? They, they, they trust the Lord in their actions. They behave in, in righteous ways. They are protected from punishment by the Lord. They're cared for uniquely. Their needs are met. And even on the day of their death, they can say that the Lord has cared for me and provided for me and protected me, and he's right there with them all along the way. Versus the wicked, the wicked who do speak deceitfully, who do act in wicked ways, who refuse to trust in the Lord, who don't fear the Lord, who don't act in faith-driven obedience, but they try to preserve themselves without dependence on the Lord. And these individuals who do that, not only do they have death and suffering coming to them, but they have the judgment of God coming to them. And David says, yeah, it's different for them. So which would you choose? Of course, we choose to taste the Lord is good. But tasting the Lord's goodness means trusting the Lord and it means turning from evil. There's a distinction here, a difference in how we live, how we speak. I just want to highlight a couple of those because they're, they're real trouble spots for us. The first is deceitfulness with our lips. Listen, lying is a pervasive struggle for all of us. And not that all the time we're tempted to tell bold-faced lies, but that all the time we can be tempted to speak in ways that uh, de-emphasize the truth to our benefit. And so we can just be manipulative in our speech. We can be intentionally deceptive. We can be deceptive in a silence, right? And all that rather than just speaking the truth. But when we, when we deceive like that, we think that we're the ones determining our fate. And so here, David says, if we fear the Lord, we just, we tell the truth. We just, we speak the truth in love. There's a calling there, not again to earn God's favor, but because We've trusted in God. There's an issue here with actually how we behave. 
So how we, we turn from evil. Again, tasting the Lord's goodness means trusting him and turning from evil. We turn from evil behavior. We say no to that temptation. Again, in our culture, it means putting a line that says, you know, I'm not going to cross this line. This is what God has called me to. And I know everybody else thinks that's fun to watch or that's okay to be entertained by, but I'm not going to be entertained by that. So there's certain lines that I, I'm not going to cross, right? And so we just choose. I'm going to turn from evil rather than turning towards evil. And again, that's, your, that's your, your moment of temptation. That's your struggle where you're saying, okay, Lord, I'm tempted to go here. I'm tempted to do this. I'm tempted to, to, to get drunk. I'm tempted to go to this party. I'm tempted to act in this way. But Lord, I'm going to turn from that evil, right? I'm tempted to gossip, Lord. I'm tempted to, to whatever. Okay, Lord, I'm going to turn from that evil and I'm not going to do it. And, and when we do that, it's a moment of faith where we're saying, I'm going to trust the Lord for the outcome. This is what the person who has the fear of the Lord looks like. This is what it looks like to taste and see that the Lord is good. All right? We have to risk that faith-driven obedience. But will your bones really not be broken? Well, again, obviously David's not saying that. But what's so interesting is if we keep reading in the Bible, we get to the story of the Messiah. You remember Jesus arrives on the scene, the son of David. And remember, he's teaching and healing, right? And then, of course... Bearing our sins, he goes to the cross. And there he is hanging on the cross. He's been suffering. He's been beaten. He's been ridiculed, mocked. He's faced physical torture. And there he is dying on the cross. And in fact, he died earlier than expected. And you remember, they went to test to see if, if he was dead. And so, you know, they're going around. They're breaking the legs of the guys on the cross because they want to get him dead and off the crosses. And they go to, to Jesus where they're like, wait, hold on. I think he's actually dead already. And they don't, they don't break his legs. It's very interesting. In the Gospel of John... The Apostle John, in John chapter 19, at that exact moment, at that exact moment, he quotes from Psalm 34, verse 20. He protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, this is a psalm about trusting God and he provides for your needs. And the Apostle John, he knows that. And he says, you know what's so interesting? Is that in this moment, I see God's faithfulness on display that, yes, they didn't break Jesus' legs to speed up his death on the cross. What does that prove? Well, that proves that God was faithful even through the death of Jesus, the son of David. Now, that's not the end of the story. We know that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death. We know that there's a whole second part of that story that's triumph and victory. But when John quotes Psalm 34, he quotes a psalm that says, you should trust God and taste and see that the Lord is good, even in those moments of desperation and hardship, because he protects your bones. You may be crucified, but he's protecting you. What a juxtaposition to say that even though I may be suffering, God still is protecting me and his plan is advancing and so I can say, yes, taste and see that the Lord is good, even through being on the run for my life, even through times of financial difficulty and hardship, even through whatever difficulty you're facing, you can say, I can taste and see that the Lord is good. And even if it means my suffering and death, the Lord protects me. And he walks with me through that dark valley. Of course, at the end of the psalm, we find out that what happens to those who trust the Lord, they are protected from his judgment which really that is the ultimate need that we have. Jesus serves as a model of suffering by faith, and it's by faith in him that we're protected from God's judgment. Jesus proves that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He proves that those who are crushed in spirit, trusting in the Lord means they don't lose. 
they actually win. And Jesus is not only the basis of our protection from God's judgment, but here he also serves as an example of what it looks like to fear the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor Ryan, I'm crushed. I'm brokenhearted today because of whatever it is in your life. Well, I would encourage you, based on Psalm 34, to not pretend that everything's fine. There's no uh, virtue in a plastic pretend smile, right? Just faking it. Acknowledge your, your brokenness and do what David says he did. Seek the Lord. I mean, turn to the Lord. Fear the Lord. Think on what is true and what is right. And I would also say, do what David did in relying on testimony from others. And as he tries to pass the baton to us, we pass the baton to others. And so we say, yes, we need help sometimes from other people to help me love the Lord, to help me trust him in the midst of difficulty and hardship. So rely on others that, that God has blessed you with, who, who love God, who can direct you in wise ways. But if you're crushed, if you're brokenhearted, at the end of the day, remember that fundamentally your hope is not in yourself. It's not in someone else. It's only in the Lord. And maybe you just have to remind yourself to taste and see that he is good. Because when we taste the Lord is good, we trust him. We trust him by turning away from evil and relying on him no matter what. You have to choose to do this. Nobody else can do it for you. My friend Martin Luther made that observation commenting on this psalm. He said, this sweetness, that tasting that the Lord is good, this sweetness cannot be known unless one has experienced and felt it for himself. You have to experience it yourself. You have to go to the restaurant for yourself. No one else can do it for you. No one can attain it unless he trusts in God with his whole heart when he's in the depths and in sore straits. You know, Luther's funny because he actually spent a, a time in his life on the run from Pope Leo X uh, because Pope Leo X didn't like Luther and didn't like what he was teaching and preaching. And so Pope Leo X had the authority to execute Luther, and he wanted him executed. And there were these political circumstances going on at the time that, that just, it was, it's bizarre, and it's a testimony to God's kindness that basically it worked out that he had political protection that had nothing to do with anything theological. He just, he happened to have political protection, so it worked out. But there was a while there where it was a little sketchy. And so Luther would go to these meetings. He was summoned to these meetings where he was called to basically say he didn't believe whatever he believed, and he was going there under the threat of death. And so he, he literally thought one time he was going to this one meeting, and he thought, well, I'm going to die. I bet I've been a disappointment to my parents. That was literally his thought. Like he wrote it down in his journal. Like that's what I was thinking about this meeting, right? He's going, and he's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die a failure, a miserable failure. He said, Lord, go before me. Lord, work with me. And here commenting on Psalm 34, he says, you know what? You've got to experience it, but you can't experience it until you've been in the tough spot. It's when you've been in that moment of desperation, then that you see and taste that the Lord is good. So basically, he says, it's okay to be in dire straits. It's okay to be on the run in gaff, right? It's okay to be desperate and to be confused and to wonder, what should I do? At the end of the day, as long as we're trusting the Lord, we're in the right place. The invitation is clear. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us? Lord, we thank you so much for Psalm 34. 
Lord, uh, we thank you for this testimony of your goodness from this one moment in David's life. But Lord, we see that that leads to here a reflection of worship and, Lord, a reflection on wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be people who taste and see that you are good. Lord, we pray especially that um, for many of us, although we've been in Christian families and in an environment where we've heard many others testify of your goodness, Lord, we pray that you, you would help us not to be content to be second-hand experiencers of your goodness. Lord, help us to trust you, especially in these moments, Lord, when we're, when we're wandering, when we're desperate, when we're confused. Lord, help us to turn to you. Lord, help us to be these people who, who show what the fear of the Lord looks like. And Lord, we pray that you would rescue us, that you would provide, that you would meet our needs. And Lord, we thank you most of all for Jesus, who not only shows us what this looks like to trust you through hardship, but who is the greater son of David, who provides for us protection from your judgment and meets our needs. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for the connection that we see here in Psalm 34, this reminder that our best move is to trust in you. Lord, I pray for those who are here who feel brokenhearted, whose spirits are crushed. I pray that even in the pain and the hardship that they are facing, that they would see in you your goodness, that they would experience your grace. And Lord, we pray for mercy, mercy as we day in, day out seek to trust you. Help us to taste and see that you are good. We ask now in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.